People are strange. People get better. People. People who need people. excited about this episode. I got the chance to visit with my dear friend, Janet, the Tennessee Tramp Williams. I've said several times on these uh, episodes that probably the best part of my job is being able to meet somebody at the beginning of a career or a change or a story, something, and then follow it on through. And Janet certainly fits into that category. What's different about Janet, uh, unlike some of the other, you know, young people starting out, she was 47 when we first met. She decided after a divorce, out of the blue, that she wanted to become a stand-up comic. And that is exactly what she's done for the last 24 years. So now at age 71, she's still going strong. She's still traveling the country. She's still getting up there and doing it day in and day out. We met in the 1926 Society Lounge at the Tivoli, as I've done several of these. So so thankful for those guys to let me do it. But Janet is, she is well known, as the nickname would imply, the Tennessee Tramp, as a blue comic. We talk about that, the pros and the cons. We talk about where she plans to go, what she plans to do next. We didn't get into it in great deal, but she is discussing doing a podcast of her own, which I just think is a no-brainer. Imagine a 71-year-old blue female comic. I think it's a terrific idea. We talk about uh, what she loves about her job. We talk about some of the struggles, though there aren't many. She's just a happy person, and that comes through in this interview. So without further ado, here is my latest podcast, my interview with Janet, the Tennessee Tramp Williams. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Janet. And thanks for all the help from the Tivoli. All right. Enjoy. Uh, Nathan, you got a dog? Yeah. What kind? Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> the black man's face just lit up. Woo! <laughs> a pit. What's his name? Candy. Candy. <laughs> It rips her fucking face off, okay? Get down, Candy, get down. I got the cutest dog in the world. She's a little French bulldog, but she barks in English. And um, her name is Blossom, and I love her. I got her when she was eight weeks old. We travel everywhere together unless I have to fly. We're extremely bonded. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that when she was a puppy, I breastfed her. And I... Um, what in the world made you think you could get up on stage 
and tell jokes for... Well, Barry, in high school, I got wittiest, not most likely to succeed. And um, I've always been able to make people laugh. Then I taught on a university level, so you've got an audience there, okay? Um, and then I'd seen comics make fun of spouses or their kids or whatever. So I contacted Michael, and he was like, uh, you've never done comedy before? I go, I've done it all my whole life. He goes, you gotta take a class. Steve Plemons taught the class. He was excellent. You have today a lot of people that go, I'm, you gotta take my class, and they're not seasoned comics, and they didn't have the knowledge that Steve Plemons had. So I took his class, and I think it was six weeks or eight weeks. I was the only woman in the class. You know, you were there for graduation. Yeah. And it just took off from there. You know, uh, I don't necessarily have to be the center of attention, but it turns out that usually I am the center of attention because I'm going to let my voice be heard. So comedy just, I fell into it. You know, I didn't plan to be a stand-up comic. I just wanted to make fun of that ex-husband. Well, that's what I mean, though. You woke up one day and said, I need to make fun of this ex-husband. What's the best venue? Look, uh -huh. we have a comedy club. I'm going to call that guy. Was it that quick? That yeah, it was just like that, on a whim. <laughs> on a whim. <laughs> he must have been some ex-husband. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Um, Michael... Michael kind of took me under his wing. He knew that I was, you know, I wasn't flying real high. And he has me at the Comedy Catch twice a year. Yeah. And I've built up a really good following here in Chattanooga. The amazing thing about this job, because I have done it for, you know, 24 years, like I'm going to be in Charleston, South Carolina this weekend. And then I'm going to be in Tarpon Springs, Florida the next weekend. I have, like, comedy family there, people that come out to see me. Yeah. You know, and when somebody says, can I have my picture made with you? Or I want your autograph. And I'll never forget, the first time someone asked me for my autograph was at the old comedy catch upstairs. And it was two waitresses from Governor's. You remember Governor's sure, Bar? Sure, and, um, and that's where I found my last ex-husband. Um, but they said, we want your autograph. And I autographed a napkin and I thought, I can't believe they wanted my autograph. I am one paycheck from being homeless. They got a whole almost homeless person's autograph. Nice. So, and it is, I'm not going to lie to you, it is an ego trip. You, you know what I mean? You can make people laugh, and you don't expect this side of it. People coming up and go, we buried our mother last week, and we yeah, needed to get out. Yeah. You know, I remember there were five sisters. They had the best time. You know, so you're touching lives that you really don't realize that you're touching. Well, there's a... I mean, I interview a lot of comics, and I'm fascinated by it um, for so many reasons, but there's there's different approaches. There's the political type who, you know, I don't know, I guess he thinks he's changing minds. Right. Uh, but most of the ones, and especially the ones who are around for a long time, will say to me, look, these people need to come and forget outside for 60 minutes. That's my job. And that core, is so true. That's that's my job. That yeah. is so true. And you want them to laugh. You want them to have a good time. But if I had a dollar for everybody that comes up and goes, I want to tell you this joke. You can use this in well, your act. You know, yeah. yeah. And it's a stock joke. But I mean, they've taken the time to come up. You know what I mean? I learned a lot from Etta May. She said, don't be talking to all these people. Tell them to move to one side and you'll get back with them. And then you can get your merchandise sold. And that was a real eye-opener for me because I want to spend the time. And I've, I've worked with a couple of feature acts that go, oh, 
I got so drunk last night, I don't feel good today. And I go, you can leave that hangover in this green room. Yeah. These people have paid good money to come out for us to make them laugh. And that is your job. Yeah. It's your job for 25 or 30 minutes. So get over yourself, you know. I, name dropping, but interviewing Jeff Foxworthy one day, and he said the same thing, that people are constantly sharing jokes. But he had one couple opened with uh, their uncle or somebody got out of the car and a raccoon bit his nipple off and Jeff was like you have my attention <laughs> <laughs> haven't heard this one <laughs> and you know comedy truly writes itself <laughs> and you know stuff. that happened and yeah. I'm just going to say it yeah. happened in Alabama or Saudi Daisy yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know <laughs> let's go back to uh, the class um, because uh, and, and it, it kind of fits into the whole how long you've done this, but I think all of us watch a comic on stage and don't realize the ones that make it easy how hard that is. There's a skill set, right? It's there not is just definitely a skill set. Joke. So, what are the things that you learned in that class when you talk about? Well, I'll tell you, and it was so good at it. remedial things like uh, Steve was paid such close attention to detail. He goes, you get up there, you you have to put the microphone back in the stand for the next entertainer. And you take the microphone out and you move that stand. Otherwise you stand, you know, with the microphone blocking you from, yeah. from the crowd. That's the most remedial thing. And so many people even today don't necessarily do that, okay? Um, and he said, you have to write. And just because, and I'll never forget, he goes, a funny word is pudding. Pudding's just a funny word. And so we must have spent 30 minutes on the word pudding. And then we had a notebook, and it was Maver um, Bermuda Maverick Comedy Class from Les McCurdy and Kenny Sons. Because, right. you know, they owned the comedy yeah, catch to begin it, with. Yeah. And I'll be working for, um, for Les McCurdy, I think it's in July or August. He's down in Florida. He's down in Florida, yeah. in Sarasota. And, um, you know, all those little things. And then we had, had the notebook that they had put together. And it had a, a picture. And then you put what you think the caption underneath. Okay, how could you make that funnier? So it is a matter. That's why Karen is a much better writer than I am. Because she really studies this. It's, and learning to edit. Yes, yes. And know that when you get up and tell a joke, it may not fly. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it should be thrown away. You need to tweak it. In ways because it could be a very good joke. David Sedaris was here in town not too long ago, um, and we had this very same sort of conversation. And one of the things he said is he, he would watch other storytellers, he's more of a storyteller than a stand up comic, right? Really, he would watch and just learn from their awful mistakes. One of which was coming up on stage with a big old stack of notebooks, uh. cards. Because then as an audience member, you're just thinking, how many more of those does he have? Right. You know, or saying, I have four stories to tell. Now i got to hear the other three. You right, know, exactly. That's what your brain's thinking more than listening to the story. You know, I'll never forget when uh, Janine Garofalo had an HBO special, and she took a notebook and set it on the stool. And I'm like, that's an HBO special. I know I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, Barry, one of the questions you asked me was, where do you see yourself five years from now? And I said, well, in two years, I'll have an HBO special. 
And then we discovered, I can't spell HBO. <laughs> well, you know, we laugh and you haven't had one. And I don't, I don't say that teasingly, but you had the chutzpah to call Michael and say, I want to get up on your stage. Right. So, you know, you got to have confidence. Well, I tell you, I have never felt uncomfortable in any situation, ever. Wow. Any situation. And I surround myself with very smart people that I can learn from. And I think my close friends continue working hard because they don't want to live the lifestyle that I live. So I'm also a motivator. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that first time when you did get on Michael's stage. Uh, for the class or for the real thing? Real thing. Oh, I was in heaven. It was like, because you know the upstairs room was so intimate. You were like right there with the crowd. And um, Michael walks that room back and forth, back and forth. And he usually has these arms crossed. And I'm like, ooh, I wonder what he's thinking. You know, is he staring at me? Is he listening to me? But then I just got into it. And I, I can't explain it. I Maybe another comic could explain it better than I'm incapable of uh, explaining it. But it's like a high that you you just can't get. Do you you remember know, the first joke? I don't remember. I don't remember what I ate for breakfast this morning. How <laughs> dare a, you? It was a chance. No, I really, I, I, I don't remember the, the first joke. And I still use some of my stuff from the very first time I took the stage because it was good stuff. Um, and um, I'll always read a newspaper for the city that I'm in because I want to know something about that city. And I owe that to that audience to know something about the area that they're living in, you know, so the learning curve from the class, how far, how much farther or bigger is the curve from 24 years ago? You know, I think I'm just in, I think I'm in the stride. And here's how this, this works. I've heard other comics say this as well. When I've been doing comedy five years, it was a five year mark, I go, oh, I've got this business down. I know how this works. The next five years, I go, I thought I knew, but I really know how it works. Now I'm almost at 25, and I'm still going, oh, so this is how it works. I don't think you ever 100% understand every single audience. You can't because they're all different. Uh, and you just learn every single time that you get up there. Do you, you talk about the audience. Some, some guys get up and they have their 45 minutes or whatever, and they're going to do it no matter the audience. Right. Some can completely shift gears in mid after the first joke. Where do you think you fall in that sort of? I will never sit in a green room, okay? I like to see the audience come in, and one of my degrees is psychology, and you can learn a lot just from watching people. So I never sit in a green room. Then I watch that MC get up and that feature act and see how they are dealing with the audience and the audience is dealing with them because I'm the brunt of every joke. I don't want anyone to leave my show and feel like their feelings are hurt. I just don't want that. Yeah. That's, that's not how, how I play this, because life's difficult enough as it is. And I want them to have had a good time. Now, if you've got a heckler, that's a whole different ballgame. And I can shut down a heckler in about less than 60 seconds. And women, drunk women are the worst. A drunk man, you can shut down. A drunk woman, she's going to keep running that mouth. Yep. I, you're saying all that. I'm thinking of Anthony Jeselnik. I think it's Anthony. I don't think it's Andrew. I'll change it if it if it is 
I don't know if you know him. He's he's the complete opposite of what you're saying. Every joke is designed to offend somebody. Okay, and there there are comics like that. Not necessarily a particular audience member, but um, a group. Right. And he's an equal opportunity. What I and he'll one of the things he'll do is tell a joke that is about a dead child or something. Right. And he'll and he'll well if you liked that one you're going to love this next one. Right. Or I'm surprised you laughed at that one. You're, you know, and I don't know how much of that he adjusts, but it is part of his routine. And I get that. And I say that I don't want to offend anybody. I'm talking about picking out somebody and yeah. going, you're fat, yeah, yeah. you know, or man, how do you possibly get a date? Offensive, I'm extremely offensive. It's about groups of people. It's about religions, which you're taking a chance when you take the stage here in Chattanooga. Uh, religion, um, various types of people, um, and I'll get, ooh, you know, um, and that's a really good sound to hear as a comic, because <laughs> you know they're <laughs> listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're listening, that's good. Well, I should say, uh, we're, you and I are sitting here again in the uh, 1920s uh, lounge at the Tivoli, they're nice enough to let us in. Um, you were talking about that Book of Mormon was here last year. They've got Les Mis here. We happen to be here the week that Les Mis is here. Right. Book of Mormon, one would think, would be so offensive to the Mormons, but apparently they love it. It does they better love it. in Utah. And it's fabulous. Isn't that funny how we like to laugh at ourselves? Oh, yeah, yeah. If it's done well. If it's done well. Um, and I live on, I leave on a high note with whatever I'm making fun of. But, you know, here's the thing about Chattanooga. And I'm not originally from here. I love Chattanooga, Tennessee. I understand why people want to retire here. But old school Chattanooga, when you move here, they ask you three questions. What is your name? And they mean your last name to see if you're one of the four founding fathers. Mm -hmm. Where did you go to school? They don't mean college. GPS, Baylor, or Macaulay. And where do you go to church? Yep. So if your name is Jones and you're an atheist, you struck out here. It's just yeah. not going to happen for and you. you're from New York. Yeah, yeah. You're in a hole. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I find that I find that very strange, and I have had the opportunity to travel all over the world because I've done a lot of military tours. Never have I been anywhere other than Chattanooga, Tennessee, that asks you those three questions. It's so funny. that You're 100% correct, and it's, you know... It's it's just so interesting that people pick up on that so quickly. I sat in this room with Ricardo Morrison. You mentioned GPS Baylor Macaulay. He went to Howard. I never looked at it from that right. side of the street, so to speak, when he would tell people he's from Howard, and he has his PhD, PhD from Yale. The Howard trumps everything. He's, he's immediately... Dismissed. It, it, totally. You know? And you know, while he's talking to the person, he can tell he's dismissed. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a it's, given. It's fascinating. Talk about playing blue. Um, okay. You know, there's kind of a ladder or hierarchy of comedy, and clean comics do get the most work, and they can do a lot of corporate work because they're clean. Because, Barry, let's say that you own this business and you want a comic to come in, mm -hmm. particularly today with the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. and you want a comic to come in, a clean comic that's not offensive, 
are, are not going to pose any threat is going to get that gig. A blue comic, you've got men and women in that same room. And if I say something that a woman or a man finds offensive, they're stuck in that room because they're working for that company. So I'm not going to get the same corporate work. Um, I have done corporate work. I did the redhead ladies, redhead ladies in Texas, and they were major fun. And they said, you know, just kind of clean up the act a little bit. Well, I kind of followed them. I said, y'all want a clean show or a dirty show? 100% said dirty. And I had a 97-year-old woman. I hope one day I can be as funny as she was with her red hat. But um, other corporate gigs I've done, I've done uh, Dr. Burns here at Erlanger. He's always had an annual event for cancer survivors. And he had me do comedy for his show for, for that gathering. And they feed you, they give massages, manicures and pedicures. It's a wonderful night out. And um, so he, he goes, you know, I'd like for you to warm the crowd up. And then he said, you know, you go around and visit with everybody. And I really like that. And you remember their names. My, this is, this is just my perspective on things. Fortunately, I've never had cancer. But I think when you go through chemo and radiation and you lose your hair, this is my personal observation, you always have the best shaped head. I've never seen bumpy or dented heads. And I've got a bumpy, dented head. That's true. <laughs> and, yeah, and after this, you're welcome to feel my head. You can feel the bumps. So I tell the ladies and a couple of gentlemen there, I don't think I'll have cancer. I don't think I'm going to have to go through chemo and radiation because my head is, it's a mess. It's just a mess. But they always have the perfect shape heads. That's, yeah. That's a fact. It I is a fact. And um, if a lady's got a scarf, I go, do you mind letting me see your bald head? And if it makes you feel uncomfortable, I don't mind you seeing it all. Perfect shaped head. Every single time. <laughs> so you, I, I'm going to go home and feel my head. <laughs> I, can, I think it can actually determine whether you're going to go through chemo radiation. I, I, I like it. They, they need, I, we need to tell that to the doctor's offices over there. They won't Forget pay attention to me. I need somebody with some, some power behind them. I think you can promote That's this funny. thing. That's funny. But so the, the blue thing is a choice. And you said you, you really like cussing. Well, I like working blue. You know, I like adult, you know, I'll tell Karen Mills, I can't do what you do. You do it every day, Janet. But I mean, um, Karen Mills gives, her, her act has nothing to do with sexuality, the sex act. Um, my, my premises start off blue. You don't have to cuss in them, but the, it is an adult show. And I have worked places where they'll have a nice comedy room attached to a restaurant. This happened on one occasion. And there were three children there. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do my act, you know. Um, so they said, well, talk to the dad. He says their kids have seen everything. So and over, and that's when I used to have the party person. It had the various sexual toys in it. So I leaned over and showed the father one of the items, and he goes, we're going to be checking out now. <laughs> but I don't think I should have to change my act when I've been advertised as blue. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess what I'm, I'm wondering, is, and it, it, you said Karen has asked you this many, many times. You could work other places. You could do corporate, which is good money. Yep. Um, 
It's the best money. It's the best money, okay. So, I mean, what is it about it that you like? And has the business side of it ever entered into your... Yeah, the business side, yeah, the business side has entered into it because I don't make a whole lot of money doing stand-up comedy. Um, I'm happy and I like to travel and I like to meet people. I have to factor that in as part of my payment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't play in front of thousands of people. You know, Southern Mama, he got all those hits. Bam, he's a social media comedian. He's not a stand-up comic, but his show is absolutely hysterical. And he plays in front of thousands of people. I do not. Um, I wish, if I had it to do over again, I would still be a blue comic, but with the name the Tennessee Tramp, they don't think you can do clean. There's just no way. you know. Um, and I have set that precedence before me. So doing a, a corporate gig, I have to sign off you know, saying, yeah. If I, if I say a four-letter word, you don't pay me. Trust me, I'm not going to do something I, I can't do. Well, that, I mean, that's interesting. You, you picked a name like that or got a name like that. It does sort of pigeonhole you into something. And I, and I talked to comics, uh, Larry the Cable Guy doesn't talk like that. No. All the time. He's Anime, highly educated. Yeah. Edema, I ran into her at uh, Karen Mills' um, the old shop that she had didn't know who she was, you know. She, she obviously doesn't run around town dressed like that. Yeah. Doesn't talk like that. Um, so that's one of those things. And, and we've heard from comics. Jeff Foxworthy, I think, would even tell you he's kind of glad he did the whole you might be a redneck because it made him very, very wealthy. But it sort of pigeonholed him for time where he has to do it. Is that something that's that concerns you that, you know, on the one hand, you hear from musicians, I wish I had a number one single. Right. Billy Ray Cyrus, for example, I think he loathes that song as much as the rest of us do, but it made him very wealthy. Right. You know what I mean? Well, and you know, like Foxworthy said, that kind of pigeonholed him, okay? Right. But it's made him wealthy. My blue comedy has pigeonholed me. You know, when I started out, if I had the same zealousness that I did starting out, because Barry, I thought, there was a secret handshake, like the Striners half and the Masons, because I would call and they go, we don't even know who you are, click. And I'd be like, there's a secret handshake and nobody's gonna tell me what it is. It's perseverance. And I found that I could take five rejections without wanting to cry like a little bitch, okay? But it was, my cutoff point at that time, I can take all kinds now, but I could deal with five rejections and not feel like I was a failure. Um, And if you call five places and you pitch your your act to them, one of them's gonna hire you. And here's how I started out. I would call and I'd go, we've never heard of you. I said, here's the deal. Advertise me as a blue comic, or rated, however you wanna do it. Pay me X amount of money and if I don't do a good job, I'll give you half of the money back and I won't be in touch with you for a year. And then I go, that's a lot. I'll get in touch with you in six months. But I will not, you know, I'll give you half your money. Really, you do that. And I wasn't making big money. It was like I didn't have to give them $3,000 back. And I never had to give any money back. So I knew what, I knew what my comedy, comedy was. I knew that there could be people offended if I was not promoted 
properly. Right. And uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen uh, The Midnight Swinger, David. Yeah. Excellent. And he is a unbelievable businessman. And uh, he and I try to go to lunch when we're both here in town. And I said, you know, Michael puts me down as double R. You know, I don't know what double R is. He goes, that's good. Because people know what R is. They'll come out to see double R. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's yeah. good. And you know where Jeff Foxworthy said that he was pigeonholed, okay? I pigeonholed myself as well by being a blue comic. And a lot of clean comics go, you know, anybody can write a dick joke. No, they can't. And I thought about writing writing a book that says writing dick jokes is not easy. But you know, you harder can't even, you think. Yeah. <laughs> harder than I like that. Yeah. <laughs> you can have that. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> but it's it's all in the presentation and you better know that you've got to follow up with what you're saying. Now I'm in a whole different segment. I'm 71 years old. And I work with female comics that are 30, 35, 40, maybe 45, and they want to talk about getting old. You know, if you're talking about getting old now, what yeah, till you're 71? You know, well, and- I mean, you think about, I mean, Richard Pryor was probably the first I was aware of. I know there were plenty more who, who language, you know, right language especially um but like for me cat williams i can't even listen to no i totally agree because if he talks for three minutes if we were to edit out all the fucks and whatever right it's two seconds exactly i just can't listen to it people love it uh, i'm not easily offended um at all i'm like you i love cussing um, well, and I'll tell you, Barry, by you bring it over and over, over again. I don't want, I don't want the, that word to be the best part of your joke. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought up, um, well, black comics. Because let me tell you, Cheryl Underwood saw me when I had six minutes to my name. I was in a comedy festival in Jacksonville, Florida. And I came off the stage and she grabbed me and she goes, You are some kind of funny. Black people are going to love you, and white people won't know what to do with you. I was the first white female on BET Comic View for two seasons. Okay? Say what you want to. I don't get involved in race things. You know, the schools were integrated when I started the 10th grade in Ringo, Georgia. And one of the ladies that lived in Ringo, Georgia, called my mother and said, you might want to know Janet has four Negroes in the car with her. And my mother said, I'm shocked she's not that good a driver. <laughs> <laughs> so by being raised, um, you know, not in the South, our formative years, we missed out on all that racism. You know what I mean? But I love a black, I love a black club because here's what they do. They give you about less than 120 seconds to be funny. They may throw a drink on you. They may throw their car keys at you. And you throw your car keys at me, we're going to have a date. That's how I take that as a date. But they are, they can laugh about so much stuff and get up and go to church on Sunday. They're able to separate those things. You know, you can laugh at dirty and still be a Christian. Um, and black clubs, if I could do the rest of my, my comedy, with the exception of the ones that I'm working now, I'd like to do all black yeah. clubs we talking about perseverance it made me think uh and we were talking about a comic i guess finding it dangerous you know the stories like rodney dangerfield 
didn't do well until he landed on that chick, if you will. Took and he was old. Right. Right. Uh, Dolomite with the Eddie Murphy movie just just came out. Uh, you know, he was a struggling singer, comedian, and then landed on the the old uh, uh, insults. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that we hold him up as he's not Richard Pryor, really, right. but, but he got done what he wanted done by just paying attention, figuring things out, being pers persevering. Yeah, and here's the thing. The joke is, if you open for the tramp, you're going to have the most successful career. Corey Forrester? Yeah. Okay. The Wellwood, they all opened for me. Roy Woods Jr. opened for me. Pat Dixon opened for me. Um, oh, I'm trying, Keith Alberstadt opened for me. If I had a page in front of me, all these people have gone on to have sitcoms, tours, books, the whole works. And people will say to me, you know, does that bother you? Not in the least. And I'm big on helping comics get in places because I'll try to bring a new feature every time because they wouldn't get in here. Michael's got an A room and it's known all over the United States. So to get in on his stage is a big deal. When you live here, you may not view it as a big deal, but it is a big deal. And I like to see people make it because I know how hard it was for me. Right. And I think at the base of everything with me, I am truly an educator. I loved teaching, loved it. Um, but then got into comedy and here we are, I met Barry. Of all those jobs, I get, how am I trying to ask this? What are the characteristics that you have that maybe you possessed in those jobs that make this work for you? You mentioned the uh, guidance counselor and social, you're, yeah. you're able to read an audience, those sorts of, what are those sorts of things? I guess another way to ask it is, what are the things that you would now advise that a young comic needs to be able to do besides just get up on stage and tell a joke? Here's the thing. You know, you and I had a talk about social media. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a podcast further down the road. Um, young comics today, when they announce where they're gonna be, I will be headlining such and such room. I've never put that down. Okay, you're gonna be there. You don't have to promote that you're the headliner. And they don't listen. I would go into a green room because I, you know, I drove to Atlanta to get time, Nashville, and my home club for a year. I started out as a headliner. And people were like, Dale Jones goes, Janet, that's amazing. I said, I was 47 years old. I wasn't gonna live long enough to be a headliner. You know, cause there's a lot yeah, of people now. that have, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there's a lot of features that are features for 10 years yeah. or more. Um, so, you know, I knew that I had to get out there and get it. Young comics today, not all of them, are so impressed with themselves I would go to green rooms and I would take a notebook and I go, I'm not taking your material, I just want to hear what you've got to say. And I would take notes because these are seasoned, seasoned artists and I could learn so much from them. So I was always taking notes. I wanted to hear everything they had to say. I wanted to pick their brain. John Witherspoon just recently died, one of the nicest men I ever opened for. And his wife is, was definitely into art. They lived in California. And John was into black memorabilia. So I'm telling him, I go, 
I've got these little natives. My mother used to be an antique dealer or junk dealer, how you view the stuff. And I had a friend that had a resale shop, and they were four little natives um, with the big red lips and beads around them. They were plastic. They're really old. And I said, John, I've got those four little natives. He goes, those are worth a lot. And I go, yeah. Do you want them? He goes, what do you want for them? I said, you rode on the back of the bus. I didn't. You can have them. So I mailed them to him. You know, but I learned so much the week that I opened for him. If he paid me $5,000 for those, I got more than $5,000 worth of information out of John Witherspoon. Super, super nice guy. But you don't find young comics. They come in, you know, I can be sitting there. They may not even introduce themselves, and they may be my feature, uh, or they may be the MC. I wanted to know everybody, and I wanted to know everything that you knew, because I knew it was going to help me. Karen Mills has helped me enormously. You know, we have that Mystic Java Cafe, mm-hmm. and uh, she came by where I was living, of on Belvoir. She goes, do you have a promotion thing? I go, I've got this, um, it wasn't a CD back then, it was the black thing, the VCR thing. Yeah, I was going to say, I have that VHS tape. <laughs> I found it the other day, Mystic Java Cafe. And I said, I've got this, and I've got a headshot. So she got me, yeah. I, w- I was on that with them. And that was a great experience for me. Granted, it wasn't picked up, but how many sitcoms are not picked up? You know, and I'll have people go, well, how long do you have to do this? And I had uh, Ryan Niemiller from America's Got Talent. Um, He opened for me in Louisville, Kentucky several years ago. He's the guy with no hands, okay? And I loved his act. So when I got on stage, I made fun of him, and I got off and he goes, you were making fun of me. I said, well, you made fun of you here because I'm the guy with no hands. I said, oh, I thought I could make fun of you too. But I'd have a comic go, you know, I've got three hours to drive and they're only paying me $75 and that's not uncommon. And I go, Ryan Niemiller has no hands. I don't want to hear what you've got to say. Ryan Niemiller was driven. He is extremely bright and is an excellent writer. And I just, I can't say enough good things about him. So, I mean, I don't want to hear anybody's excuses. You know, and in comedy, everybody's, a lot of people are depressed, not everybody. And I have a friend that said, you go to bed happy and wake up happy. I go, I'm very fortunate. I could have a head injury and that could all change. But my mother told me you got two choices. You can wake up happy or you can wake up sad. And if you wake up sad, nobody's going to want to be around you. Well, you should be happy because you know you're not going to get cancer. <laughs> That's a good point. Going. You know, you've raised my level. Uh, I'm not going to get cancer. You're exactly right. And I asked you this once before. What are you going to be doing in five years? Oh, I'm not going to tell you an HBO special because I've, I've already used that line. You know, I'm 71. Um, I am working on three different books because I can't work on just one. Okay. Um, and Amy Dingler, who opens for me a great deal out of Vero Beach, she's a great motivator for me. I hope to complete. I hope to complete those three books. I mean, how hard could it be? Um, And I hope that I've got the health that I can still stay on the road. Because I'll have young comics go and they'll go, well, when are you going to stop? And I go, what? I've just gotten started. You know, and I always take a younger feature act for me and they carry my luggage for me and they set up my merchandise and they have no money, so I'll buy their food. It's a it's a good give and take. You gotta figure it out. Yep. All right. So when you start your podcast, yes, we'll do this again. 
I can't wait. Okay. I cannot wait. Dad, thank you so much for doing this. Hey, Barry. It means a lot to me. Neither one of us are going to have cancer, and I know that relieves you today. <laughs> and you have always been the biggest supporter in my corner since the day I took stage. Absolutely. Yep. Always will be. I love you, Barry. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, honey. <laughs>